1: Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare with an episode of Rational Security for July 23rd, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled The $5 Foot Long Gate Edition. This week, Anderson, Juresik, and Rosenstein sat down to discuss Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative, House Republicans' passage of the National Defense Authorization Act that targets Defense Department policies relating to abortion, DEI, and LGBTQ issues, former Trump administration officials' plans to expand presidential power if Trump returns to the White House, and more. This is Rational Security.
2: So Scott, I have reason to believe that you are uniquely situated to provide insight onto the ongoing investigation uh, that's being conducted by special counsel, the wizard himself, Jack Smith, into Donald Trump, Uh, because you, I hear, have eaten at the subway that is at the center of this week's national conversation. What does it all mean, Scott? tell us oh, please it's 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 a big
0: sign uh, <laughs> it's a sign that jack smith is hungry for justice <laughs> that he appreciates a good value uh, you know i anybody who has worked at any of the like city or federal courthouses in dc has probably eaten at that subway a dozen times cuz there i'm 98% sure it's the specific subway i'm thinking of cuz there are so few places to eat near the courthouse that are half decent that are like carry outable I'm notoriously, I actually quite like Subway for their breakfast sandwiches where you can get like an egg sub and just make it your own. It sounds Ooh. gross, but when you're a vegetarian, it's kind of great. Uh, and so I have notoriously kind of do sweet talk slash bully the people who work there into serving me the breakfast menu for lunch at least half a dozen times with like 50% success right?
2: I myself am a, a double chicken salad guy at Subway.
3: I want to I see Jack Smith at, at one of the little food trucks that's around the mall that are right there, like maybe getting like a popsicle, like an ice cream bar.
0: <laughs> the dream. I, I, I will say the meatball sub is a ballsy move, which is what I understand he ordered, because like there's no way that's not getting on your shirt, like not in a way in the universe, unless the man really does have magic powers. Um, so like maybe it was for a colleague who had learned the way. Maybe Jack
2: Smith is just that confident in his meatball sub eating acumen. I think he's signaling that he's so confident in his case that he's willing to take the risk of appearing before a grand jury covered in meatball. That's how I read it. What
3: I want to know is, why not a ham sandwich?
2: Oh.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here with my two other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. Back in the virtual jungle studio to hash it out over a really, really big weekend in national security news. It's rare that we have so many topics that we can't decide on three honestly we had trouble deciding on four or five topics to narrow it down to to talk about this week so there's a lot going on there's some big stories in the news you may have heard about around the time of recording that we're not going to talk about this episode revolving <laughs> the indictment of a foreign president for perhaps the third time we're saving that one till we have a little bit more information and an indictment just so you know up top if you want to feel free to turn off the podcast now we hope you'll stick around we've got lots more to talk about um we did not forget <laughs> we didn't forget where we knew it know what happened no need
2: to tweet at us or email us it just didn't you will seem like anyway. that big a story third third time's a snooze as they always yeah. say with presidential indictments
0: well, you know, the 45 minutes of sandwich analysis that CNN engaged in, I think, is a sign that there may be a little bit slimmer on the facts right now that we can actually discuss. So we'll save that one till we get some paper. But there still is a lot of news around in what we are calling in honor of said story, the $5 long gate edition of Rational Security. We're excited to talk it over with you, the listener, this week. Topic one, against the grain. Russia backed out of the Turkey-facilitated Black Sea Grain initiative this past week, which had allowed much-needed Ukrainian grain to arrive in markets largely in the developing world. Now, not only is that avenue cut off, but Russian forces are attacking grain facilities in Odessa and other Ukrainian cities, threatening the global food supply. How does this brutal act fit into Russia's global strategy? How should the United States and its allies respond? Topic two, it's a war on war. The culture war is now taking on actual war as House Republicans have passed a National Defense Authorization Act laden with provisions that target Defense Department policies related to abortion, DEI, and LGBTQ issues, measures that are certain not to make it through the Democrat-controlled Senate, and may end up putting the annual bill at risk of not being passed at all. How big is the risk of such an impasse? What could it mean for U.S. national security? And topic three, coups are like pancakes. Earlier this week, the New York Times published a report about how former officials in the Trump administration are declaring the first Trump administration a mulligan and outlining plans to dramatically expand presidential power and purge the executive branch if and when Trump returns to the White House. How seriously should we take these proposals and what would they mean for democracy if implemented? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started.
3: So as you say, Scott, Russia has suspended the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which was an agreement between Ukraine and Russia uh, reached last year that allowed for international shipments of uh, grain as well as corn uh, from a couple of designated ports in Ukraine, which is important not only for the Ukrainian economy, but also for food security around the world. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. Um, now, it seems that uh, the, the deal has collapsed, uh, which raises, I think, questions not only about Russia's intentions, uh, but what this will mean for the Ukrainian economy and for the state of hunger worldwide, frankly, um, given that Ukrainian exports are maybe not going to be able to make it through the Black Sea. So, Scott, just to set things up a little bit, before we get to why Russia is now reneging on this deal, why did it agree to it in the first place?
0: Sure, you know it's a good question, um, but I think it made sense strategically for Russia during the early phases of the war, and and I think Russia's change in strategy actually tells us a little about the stage of where this conflict appears to be at, at least by my assessment. Earlier in the war. Russia was under pressure to find some way for these grain exports to continue because they are very important for a lot of countries around the world, including some in Europe, including for Turkey, including for some many uh, in other parts of the world. China is a major recipient of grain exports from Russia and from Ukraine, but primarily for humanitarian reasons the biggest concern was exports to africa uh, and yemen and a few other and afghanistan a few other major consumers that were developing countries facing famine facing food shortages where food shortages were expected to have massive humanitarian consequences russia usually often okay with really bad humanitarian consequences so i don't think i want to give them too much credit for viewing the uh, this as a humanitarian priority although some russians and russia has done things on humanitarian fronts at times and there are certainly russians even in the russian government, Government who do take those issues seriously, um, but they don't tend to drive policy in this regard, particularly around Ukraine, to say the least. But what we did see is that Russia was at a moment where, A, they expected that the military campaign was going to take some time uh, and they didn't want to galvanize pressure ought to end the military campaign because I think they thought they might still win it particularly in the first few months of the conflict, at least, they also faced a situation where they were trying to get countries not to buy into the sanctions regime being imposed by the United States and its allies on a variety of fronts and keeping countries like Turkey and India and many African countries not participating in that, kept some markets open on various fronts to Russia. Uh, And so there was an interest in discouraging those countries from signing off by showing concern for their interests, uh, showing that you're trying to do things to alleviate pressure on them. And that includes China to some extent as well. I mean, China actually is is kind of proactively courting a lot of these countries, um, particularly in the United Nations, other international fora, where actually Africa is a very influential voting bloc at this point, um, particularly in the General Assembly that's been active on a number of issues, but including Ukraine-related issues. So there's reasons why kind of both sides of the Ukraine conflict wanted to appeal to kind of that non-aligned middle. It's a little oversimplified concept, but kind of the spectrum of countries that weren't quite firmly in either camp. And this was a way they could do so and kind of make a case saying, well, we're not complete bastards. Like, you know, we're willing to take steps to alleviate these worst humanitarian concerns for the worst off people in the world. Now they have decided to be complete bastards and say, no, we're not going to do that. And not only are we going to cut down this grain initiative uh, and appear to end it, uh, it's worth noting, you know, it was set for a fixed term, so they've essentially failed to renew it. Um, But nonetheless, the the consequences are are clearly there. Um, They also are targeting actively grain facilities in Odessa. So destroying grain supplies, hindering the ability to actually export this, even if the grain initiative were to somehow restart or Ukraine were to find other avenues out like I said, I think that tells us where Russia thinks this conflict is. I think Russia is now not at the stage where it wants the conflict to go on longer. I kind of suspect it's trying to put pressure on the international community to put pressure on Ukraine to bring the conflict to a close. Because the longer this conflict goes on in the medium de- term, I suspect Russia th- is going to be in a weaker position on the ground, um, even though the Ukrainian offensive of the spring has not gone quite as swimmingly as expected. Nonetheless, Russia is kind of on the defensive at this point. And this is one avenue by which they can bring pressure in the globe, from the global
2: community on Ukraine to say, let's get some sort of ceasefire settlement progress in place. The only thing I would add to that really excellent analysis by Scott is that Russia's escalation here I think is is overdetermined. Um, so there are many reasons why it makes sense for Russia to do this right now, you know, just in the normal course of this war. Clearly Russia is not going to have any more successes. It has achieved the absolute maximum of what it has and um the longer the war drags on, um, the the more territory that the Ukrainians are going to recapture now how much they're going to recapture ultimately is not clear but clearly you know their the the momentum is is with them and then also i, I just don't think you can ignore the the post progosian hangover of all of this um, I, I don't want to imply that you know this is directly a uh, consequence of the are we even calling it a coup of the of the jk coup i guess um <laughs> that it ended up being? the, the Actually, I
3: think it's technically it's a mutiny because this is from coup experts. Excellent. Uh, it okay. was not aimed at overthrowing the government. It was aimed at overthrowing military leadership. In this case, uh, I guess, Sergei Shoigu, the minister of defense, who is civilian leadership of the military, but still.
2: OK, so we'll call it the half the half-hearted mutiny. The We we, we ran out of pizza on the way to Moscow mutiny. I Obviously, I think that just has this general overhang of putting pressure on Putin to try to, you know, detract from his own weakness by committing even more to the war. So do
3: we have a sense of what the consequences of this will be? My impression is that it could be pretty devastating not only for Ukraine's economy but also for countries who were relying on those Ukrainian imports to feed their populations.
2: It certainly is. And I think it's actually a bit worse than that. Um, Grain, like many other commodities is, well, it's a commodity, <laughs> uh, which which means that um, you can't just look at where an individual shipment is going to, to determine the effect of cutting that shipment out. So one thing that the Russians are saying is actually the end of this initiative is actually not that big of a deal. Because when you look at where the shipments were going from Ukraine, they were actually not going generally to poor countries. Now, I have not myself independently verified where the specific shipments were going. Uh, but even if that were the case, that they were not going to poor countries, that is irrelevant because the market, the, the global price for grain depends on how much grain there is in circulation. It does not depend on where the specific shipment of grain from Ukraine is going. Um, so you, if you cut that shipment out, even if it was going to a rich country, that rich country is simply just going to bid up the price of grain uh, because it can afford to. And then the poor countries that need the grain that would otherwise be coming from United States, or I, I actually don't know which countries make a, export a lot of grain. Th- those prices will will go up. So that that is the the uh, important sort of just basic kind of economic point for everyone to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it, so we're going to see you know higher prices really across the board that can have economic consequences in the United States. Remember, like a, we did see in the first few months of the conflict before. The grain initiative was in place. A real shock to the price of a lot of kind of foundational grains, which of course are in everything we eat, everything a lot of the parts of the world eats. The developing world impact really comes through the World Food Program, as I understand it. uh, You know, which procures a ton of the supplies that it helps provide to famine situations from Ukraine and Russia, and I'm not sure it's found alternative sourcing for those. So, you know, we're going to see an increased pressure on find, them trying to find additional sourcing at, at, and at a price they can actually afford with whatever their budget is, given if they're going to have to go out on the open market and renegotiate the contracts for getting these sorts of things. You know, you probably are also going to see Russia try and leverage this into opening up some of its exports. One of its gripes about the grain initiative for the last several months uh, to a year or so has has been that they are not being as free to export things as Ukraine is. They're still still facing sanctions barriers. They're still facing some logistics and political barriers. These are, there's some degree to which these concerns are are valid depending on what your starting assumptions are, but like they are having additional obstacles. Ukrainians aren't because they are subject to broad multilateral sanctions on a variety of fronts. I mean, in to be
2: clear, they did invade Ukraine. <laughs> let's let's, not, uh, Ukraine. let's, yes. not, well, to, let's not lose sight of the fact that they, they started this war. <laughs>
3: Say whatever you like about Russia. You yeah, do not have exactly. to hand it to
0: them. You do not have to hand it to Russia on this particular front. And, and it's worth noting, a lot of the sanctions regimes have expressed carve-outs for grain uh, and food ex- commodities on a variety of fronts. Um, I'd have to, have to go back and look to see exactly how those apply. But my understanding is a lot of... These sorts of exports are actually like exempted from most of those applicable sanctions. And maybe it's different to country to country. I suspect a lot of this is like kind of the chilling effect, like the fact that people aren't willing to negotiate contracts with Russians because they think they might be sanctioned on these fronts down the road. So they're going to face, Russians are going to try and use this as a way to increase their grain, own grain exports, and particularly work into substitute, you know, the, the grain that was being provided to China from Ukraine uh, to the extent that's still, a, a, which appears to be from reporting a substantial volume, maybe Russia will substitute in its own exports um, for Ukraine exports for Chinese markets, for example, and maybe select other markets where there's a politically, um, a political valence reason for doing so, like Turkey, um, where Turkey is not gained. Entered global sanctions. Who knows the extent to which Russia will be able to do that? I kind of suspect with limited success, I mean, it could do that under the grain initiative as well.
2: But, uh, you know, there might be some marginal haggling around those sorts of lines, I suspect. So one question that I had, and I'd be very curious for your thoughts, both of you, is sort of what is to be done about this? You know, obviously, you can ask Russia to stop doing this. They will not, um, because it's obvious that they're using this as blackmail. Fair enough. It occurred to me, and I'd love, especially from Scott, your sense of just how stupid of an idea this is. You know, the Black Sea is, I believe, an international water. Um, and I'm pretty sure that what Russia is doing is flagrantly illegal. How crazy would it be to say, look, we are going to, you know, we it's, you'd have to identify who the we are, right? Uh, the United States plus NATO plus Europe plus whoever wants to join in this. Um, look, we're going to send some ships to escort Ukrainian grain shipments. Don't mess with them. That's all we're doing. We're not trying to do anything else, but this is a matter of international concern, and we need to stabilize grain prices and then call Russia's bluff. Now I'm well aware that what you are doing is potentially starting a war with Russia. So, I'm, uh, but I am I am curious whether you think that this idea is merely risky or completely insane. It's a good question. I think it's a question people will begin to start asking themselves.
0: It's very similar to the kind of like safety corridors idea that was heavily debated over Ukraine a year ago or so, you know, in the early to mid phases of the conflict. Um, That was very heated and presented a kind of risk, similar risk profile. You can come up with an international legal premise for escorting these. I actually think Black Sea is subject to a specialized legal regime, as I recall. Certainly the straits. I know the straits are that are involved in this, um, which is part of the reason Turkey has so much leverage and has played such a central role. And I think that's true. of Big swaths of the Black Sea. I have to go back and refresh myself to remember exactly. A lot of bodies like closed bodies of water have very specialized regimes that are different from open Body Open Sea rules, but regardless, you know, I you probably could come up with an argument. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it is it is not just a Russian lake. Like there are a lot of countries that exactly. border the Black Sea. Exactly. I mean, and Russia is also like committing unlawful acts of aggression. Like that does limit the extent to which many countries feel obliged to you know respect the rights of arm of combatants in a military armed conflict, things like that, because it's unlawful. And so, you know, there are ways that. Uh, there might be able to frame that sort of action legally. I, I think it just comes down to the risk profile, like who's going to step in and let and play this role and how risky is it? It's not impossible, just like I don't think the air corridors were impossible. And I, I think there can be even some logic to it. Um, you know, I, I I somewhat controversially at, at the time said I, I think there could be a limited role for air corridors. There's a risky proposition there, but there's legal basis for it. And I think there's reasons to think Russia really wouldn't have a reason, have been inclined to respond. I think that could be true here, too. But my suspicion is it's really high risk profile. Naval presences are also very complicated. And it's like, you know, lots of signaling and ideas about like operating in close proximity. So particularly where the Russians are being very provocative in lots of other spheres about you know, interfering with American flights in Syria, um, trying to interrupt their operations there, I think there'd be a lot of worries about provocative behavior. So you'd have to figure out who the right person to do this mission is. I suspect the United States would say not us. I suspect the Brits would say not us um, because there's just too much Russian provocation. So maybe you could get Turkey to do it, right? Uh, and that might be a more feasible solution um, or some other third party uh, and Turkey's been facilitating this deal so far and is like a major consumer of this grain. So it might have its own national interest in doing so and facing an economic crisis that's probably gonna be aggravated pretty badly if, um, you know, the wonderful Turkish baked goods that anybody's been to Turkey before is, is all of a sudden quadruples in price. That's going to be a bummer for everybody.
3: Has Erdogan said anything about this so far? Do we know?
0: I haven't seen anything uh, that that's at least not of note enough to make it into the reporting. Um, But, uh, you know, I suspect something's happening on the back back vaccines kind of in the, in the in the discussions and channels with Putin and others because this was kind of a signature accomplishment of Erdogan in the relation to this conflict but we'll see you know his real leverage really on this depends on how hard he's willing to push against Russia and that's a little bit of an open question but but he might be more willing to do so than people might think he's a little bit of a wild man as we've discussed many a time on this podcast
3: so we'd mentioned that a lot of the grain that had been exported through this deal was going to China so I'm curious if China has weighed in here what their equities are, because, of course, they've kind of sort of kind of sided with Russia, I guess, like less and less as the war has gone on. But this seems to put them in kind of a complicated situation, um, especially since the Chinese economy is having some problems as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really the front to watch is how the Chinese respond to this move um there are of course they are consumers like this affects their economic bottom line i my suspicion is that they have are better suited to deal with that in a variety of ways both cuz they have russia they can turn to potentially substitute you know, grain exports i'm not sure but i suspect that's the case and they have a big economic base and like their grain i'm not sure how big a part of like their diet in terms of calories, grain consumption is compared to other countries of this particular type of grain. But that's really, really affects our political bottom line. Because again, they are in this constant battle for kind of soft influence with the United States and the West, where they are trying to build inroads with other countries in Asia, but particularly in Africa and parts of the developing world saying the West does not care about you. They don't care about your priorities they are hypocrites. They're you know former colonialists who are still acting like colonialists. We're different from that. We don't believe in colonialism. We don't believe that sort of thing. We believe each country needs to be allowed to develop in its own way. And we want to support countries in doing that. That is really hard to square. That rhetoric is really hard to square with the whole Ukraine war in the first place. Uh, China has done so a little bit awkwardly, but it's very visibly uncomfortable for them uh, in the way they try and justify it and the fact that they just don't talk about it as much as one might think. But this pushes on that even further because now that's really hitting the bottom line. A lot of these countries, China is trying to build relationships with. And so, you know, I think there's a good reason why China might actually find this to be a big problem and push back on it. Maybe they've pre-signed this and maybe there are some outer thresholds where they say, okay, Russia, you can put up to here, and then we'll push back and then we'll say, okay, we'll either get you back into some sort of deal, or at least we'll be able to visibly say, look like we're on the side of these other countries. Or maybe China will go all in and say, oh, you know, we back Russia on doing this. And then they're really burning their relationships that they spent a lot of time trying to build over the last 10, 20 years, or at least damaging them. Um, so that's kind of like the next big front I would look to in this is to look at China and then probably Turkey to see how they're reacting and, and, and responding to this and the diplomatic moves we're seeing.
2: This is not my best segue, but I'm going to do it anyway. From military issues abroad to military issues at home, let's talk about the NDAA. Um, So the NDAA, uh, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, is the annual – oh, God, I'm going to get this wrong and I'm now really worried – Budget slash appropriations bill. I think it's an appropriations bill. Please help me, Scott. No, it's an authorization bill. Oh just God. it's right there oh in the God. name. That's I just I don't, it's all the same. It's the thing. It's an important part of the annual funding process for the military. I feel like that's fair. I feel like uh, Lawfare senior editor uh, Molly Reynolds will will accept that as a oversimplification, but um, not too bad. So this year's NDAA drama, and there's often NDAA drama because it's one of these must-pass pieces of legislation in Congress that, because it's so must-pass, lawmakers are constantly adding somewhat controversial amendments to. Uh, This year's set of controversial amendments uh, have come from a a group of uh, far-right House representatives – uh, who have managed to include in the NDA that has just passed the House uh, a set of uh, restrictions relating to a variety of sort of hot-button culture issues. Uh, so the the three notable ones are uh, restrictions on uh, and various defunding of various uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion programming that the Defense Department uh, runs, various limits on uh, DOD being able to fund certain types of uh, medical procedures uh, for transgender uh, service members. And then probably most high profile is a ban on the military reimbursing service members for travel expenses when they travel to get an abortion. Uh, because of course, in the post-Obs landscape, um, there are many parts of the country where abortion is severely limited. And so to get an abortion, uh, you have to travel out of state. Uh, and while the military would will not pay for an abortion, it will not pay for direct abortion costs. Um, it does pay for uh, for travel reimbursements for that. There's virtually no chance that the Senate will enact this. Uh, and if the Senate would enact this, which again, I, it won't, it's quite likely that President Biden would would veto this in his current form. So what we're looking at is a real showdown uh, over, over military funding. So th- there's a lot to talk about here but the first thing i want to I want to talk about in kind of a bigger picture question is you know this is currently being framed as you know a group of house republicans injecting their culture war issues into what should fundamentally be a bill about the military and the defense department and that that again, putting aside the merits of the specific proposals, that is itself inappropriate. So for example, um, Jack Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, he criticized the House Amendment saying, quote, this should be an area where politics stops and national security starts. Um, He also said, what's real is the necessary capabilities, technologies, and fundamental social support for our troops and their families. That's what this all should have been focused on, not these domestic political issues. And I want to ask if that's correct. Whether or not It is sort of ipso facto inappropriate to include these kinds of amendments in an NDAA, right? Again, this is separate from whether or not these are good amendments. Um, But I think it is a useful thought experiment to ask: like, if in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the Democrats, even a small group of Democrats in the House, um, had held up the NDAA unless they got an amendment in repealing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," would that be inappropriate? Because it does strike me that the military, the Defense Department, I mean, this is mi- literally millions of Americans. It is an incredibly important part of our social you know, system. And these sorts of issues strike me as issues that are fundamentally within the proper jurisdiction of an NDAA. Now, again, I think it's totally... Reasonable to say, yeah, but these specific amendments are very bad, and they're very harmful, and they're unnecessary, and it's just a small minority who even support them. Um, but but there does seem to be this. Kind of rhetoric developing that um, this is an injection of culture war into what should be fundamentally a technocratic exercise, and you know how many tanks the army gets. And I, I'm not sure I believe that. And I'm curious. I'm curious what you all think. I don't know, Quinta. What, what do you? What do you? What do you? What do you think? Other than that, I am an inveterate both sideser and the worst. Yeah.
3: Well, I think it's really important that we we listen to both sides here, Alan.
2: Um, in all seriousness,
3: <laughs> no. Look, I think that. We saw a similar dynamic in terms of this argument of, you know, like let's take the military out of this discussion uh, with the recent Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action, where there's a bit in that those decisions where the majority says the government told us that affirmative action is really important for military readiness. And so military academies are excluded. Um, And I think that there's a similar kind of technocratic instinct of like, when it comes to the military, we can all be rational and we're going to set aside, you know, cultural debate issues. And, you know, in that case, it was pushing on the direction of keeping affirmative action. And in, in this case, it's sort of, you know, don't bring your culture war amendments in, in here. And I think that that is overly simplistic. It certainly does in both instances speak to the the sort of particular role that the military has as a unusually trusted institution um, in American life and the way that we kind of say, you know, if you say the magical words national security, you can get away with an enormous amount of stuff. At the same time, there are substantive value judgments that are made here. And I think that there's actually overlap between if we, you know, if what you really care about is military readiness, military capacity, the willingness of Americans to sign up for and serve in the military, then having things like affirmative action, so you ensure that your officer class is not drawn from an extremely limited pool of people, is not perhaps open to far-right radicalization, which we know is a problem that the military is considering with, or it's a group of people who are able to interact with people who look differently from them um, and who have, you know, a broader range of experience, uh, that you're able to keep uh, transgender service members who decide that they want to serve their country or decide to transition when they've already joined the military and are, are capable and want to do so, that you're able to recruit people who are worried about what will happen if they're stationed in a state that doesn't allow access to abortion care, but do want to join the military. Like, all of those things cut like they, they are both substantive political commitments in favor of a particular set of principles and services and we have seen again and again actually do speak to what it means to have a capable military that looks like the country that it is protecting so I think more than anything to me it speaks to the sort of hypocrisy it's Incredibly boring to call Republicans hypocritical here, but if they say, you know, what we really care about is the military, and then you're trying to undercut it in this way, and undercut it in a way that potentially puts the NDAA at risk, like obviously they actually don't. It's just posturing.
2: Yeah. So I, I just I want to follow up on this, and I think everything you said was very well said. I I think we agree, um, ultimately, in in that if you dis if you disagree with these amendments, if you think they're uh, they're bad for military readiness or they're simply bigoted or whatever the case is. The correct response seems to be to be just to say that, to say the problem here is not that you are injecting culture war into the military. It's that you are harming the military. You are harming American society. You are being cruel to people that don't deserve it, whatever your substantive objections are. And and, and I just, I find it, and maybe this is more of a general comment on some frustrations I often have with sort of modern political discourse. People go to process arguments or these kind of go to new, sort of neutral sounding jurisdictional arguments when they could just as well and i think much more coherently say look it's it's not that you're not allowed to talk about these issues in an ndaa these are just really bad decisions that republicans are making they're bad for the military they're bad for society well, but, and okay i bad. think
3: I think that um, the difference is that your first reaction is to criticize the language that people are using to criticize the Republicans.
2: No, that's not my no 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 no, no. that's not my first reaction. That's no but no, that's not my first reaction. That's just something I'm bringing up because I think it's an interesting point. And all three of us saying Republicans are being terrible here it makes for really boring podcasting. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: Interject here because I actually think we're underselling some of the process critiques here when you bring in a political and not a legal element. Like, I agree with you fundamentally, there is nothing legally untoward or unsound about the proposals here. Thing to bear in mind, like even, you know, jurisdictional rules in Congress, like these are going through the Armed Services Committee, because it's an NDAA, like those are all constructions of Congress. Congress isn't really bound by them any more than it chooses not to be bound by them. So there's lots of avenues by which it can legislate anything. And is this thing the sort of thing within the scope of legislative authority? Yeah. Pretty much it is, right? Like, we know we've seen legislative foundations for having a once, once upon a time, not that long ago, racially segregated military that had both statutory and executive branch kind of origins. And we could go, in theory, back to that, except for constitutional barriers that are now seen as existing that may not have been seen that way at the time uh, and statutory barriers, but actually, in a lot of ways, like kind of foundationally statutory barriers. Um, you know, there's lots of things Congress could do in this space, and it's all legally toward. What's happening here, though, is that we are seeing a very slim margin House of Representatives and particularly a faction within it with the support of the leadership and the kind of slightly less extreme right wing majority willing to go along with it and voting for these amendments say, we know these aren't going to get through the Senate. The only way they get through is if we threaten to kill this bill and we're credible enough that the Senate will actually, you know steer off the road before us give up on this game of chicken and just let these things pass and that is foundationally saying that we think the marginal importance of these provisions outweighs the risk of steering off the road with the nda and not having nda authorization that's where i think the process and substantive critiques can't be divorced that readily. like you're fundamentally having a a pretty isolated political minority again this is a very slim margin in the house and a small bunch of people within the slim majority of the house. They don't control the Senate. They don't control the presidency. And they're saying, well, we're going to try and use extreme tactics to drive through our fairly narrow agenda around a certain set of issues that we think are really important to us that's, you know, a problematic endeavor in lots of circumstances. It's not uncommon these days. It's actually the same group of people who does this all the time in lots of contexts, like the debt ceiling and appropriations fights. And we're going to see it again a couple of times this year. Farm bill, I know, is going to be another big fight along similar lines. But, uh, you know, this is just seeing that manifest. But I think it is foundationally a bad tactic slash a, a problematic tactic because it, is saying there's no room for compromise. It is just who's willing to risk the broader health of the government more to advance their substantive preferences that aren't supported by a majority of the population. And like that's foundationally, I think, a problematic behavior. Doesn't mean it's illegal. It's not, but it's it, I think it's objectionable on both substantive and policy grounds, and foundationally unhealthy for the broader government that all
2: elected officials are supposed to be trying to preserve and advance the health of. So so let, let's then play out the kind of process questions uh, or the, the process slash politics questions. So w- one thing that I wanted to draw, and I think you just did really nicely, Scott, was this is probably not where certainly an overwhelming majority of Republicans want to be. Um, this is pretty clearly driven by a small group of the GOP. And it is, again, one of the unfortunate and deeply predictable consequences of the way Kevin McCarthy secured his speakership Specifically, in giving a ton of power to uh, individual House Republicans, especially those on the kind of far right fringes, um, you know th- this. We managed to deal with this in the debt ceiling debate with surprisingly little uh, drama. Um, but this may be the repercussions of that, as the spurned far right Republicans are sort of taking their pound of flesh, and this is one one place they're they're trying to do it. So, what what happens now? Right? Who who will win this game of Of chicken. What happens if the NDAA is just not passed? um, And who bears the political cost of that? So that, I think, is the
0: real question. I actually think this is where Republicans are in the House are putting themselves in a really difficult position. Um, you know, a bill doesn't pass. A lot of existing authorizations will, again, eventually stall. Like I I think there are a lot of cases like, you know, momentum that will carry them through. But this is for it can range everything from like different types of security assistance authorities that back up different types of activities. A lot of those have been kind of routinized into a standing law but uh, not all of them have. Some of them are kind of uh, kind of rolled over, renewed on a regular basis at the NDAAs. There could be all sorts of special authorizations to develop new technologies that require certain reports to be filed that Congress wants. So it actually hurts Congress in the end, not just the executive branch. Um, and then there is the authorization for acquiring appropriations. like Basically, this this bill says, here's the things you're allowed to do, Defense Department, and then they appropriate money to do them. But you need both. You need A and B. Uh, And so if you don't have one or the other, then you may not be able to pay soldiers and do the other things you have to do. And bear in mind, this is actually a constitutionally required element uh, in the Constitution for paying soldiers. Every two years, uh, we do it annually, but every two years, Congress has to appropriate money to pay soldiers. You can't do it for further out than that under the Constitution. So this isn't a surprise. It's been part of our political process since the very beginning and seen as a foundational responsibility so long as we have a standing army at all. So where how does this play out? Think about this game. It, it has it where House Republicans and Kevin McCarthy are in a position where they have to say, oh yeah, we're willing to let the military readiness of the government fail to advance these narrow social agenda. I will be honest with you. I think that is a talking point, Democrats would love to have in national elections in 2024, really, really like to have, because these culture issues are really important to Republican primary voters. They do not have wide ranging support in the broader national electorate. And so, you know, and we can tell that because the Senate doesn't feel the same way. Republicans in the Senate, with the exception of Tommy Tuberville and a few others, really are much, much more focused on keeping the status quo in terms of core funda- fundamental, you know, governance equities, defense equities in place, yeah, they may support in principle, you know, abortion restrictions and other sort of like be opposed to DEI related issues as they understand them, right? But they're not going to go so far on a limb to make those a higher priority above, you know, defense spending and defense authorization. And so this is really going to be the house out on a limb on its own. And who's going to want to run on that? It'll help some people in Republican primaries. It'll help people in Republican districts that only have to appeal to a narrow set of voters that are ideologically on the far side of the spectrum. But it's not going to help the national party at all. And it's going to be in a way that I think will will hurt. The broader Republican agenda electorally, I think Kevin McCarthy knows that, and he's going to be on a lot of pressure to not have it come to that. So I kind of suspect you're going to see the House cave when a Senate bill comes back that doesn't include most of these things. Maybe it has a a couple of sweeteners just to make it a little easier to sell to the House caucus. But then it comes back to House strong is Kevin McCarthy's control of his caucus. How far can he actually push them? And, and this may be unlike the debt ceiling fight where they decide to draw the line and can actually get a cohesive enough block together to really block it. So, you know, long story sh- short, this is only just the beginning of a process. And, and I think it's a hard road to actually get to the end for House Republicans. This is a short term victory, but I think it may be a long term defeat, if I'm being honest. Well, let us go from talking about efforts to use the Congress to drive fundamental changes in the executive branch to efforts to use the executive branch to drive fundamental changes in the executive branch because we have gotten wind over the past few weeks and particularly in a New York Times article this past week about a new plan being put together by former members of the Trump administration uh, and political allies, mostly centered around the Heritage Foundation um, to some extent, although with a couple of little satellite groups, basically laying out an agenda for what would be a second Trump administration or another similarly ideologically affiliated Republican presidential administration, outlining efforts to as they describe it, sees kind of the executive branch back from civil servants, back from lots of barriers they see that are installed to preserve a liberal agenda and obstruct a conservative agenda, including removing civil servants or reducing or removing um, their removal protections. So civil servants will be much more beholden to political whims It might be removed if they don't play along with the kind of political governing majority, reining in independent uh, agencies of various stripes, um, threatening to return to impoundment, uh, a, a process the executive branch used to use periodically, and it was a source of a lot of Inner uh, branch conflict in prior decades where the executive branch simply wouldn't spend money appropriated by Congress for things it didn't like, Uh, essentially asserting a much broader and more aggressive vision of executive power vis-a-vis Congress than we've really seen taken very seriously, at least as far as this group is proposing to do, And really consciously saying, this is going to be a big part of our agenda. And here's a list of people ready to help implement this agenda for potential nominees in a future Republican administration. Quinta, let me start with you on this, as I know you've read into this and been doing some thinking about this. I'll come to you, Alan. You know, tell us a little bit about what you make of this Effort. What is its real goal? It's being very open and transparent about what, um, you know, sounds like a very kind of conniving secret agenda, but instead they're really trumpeting it and very openly giving interviews to New York Times and New Yorker reporters about it. You know, really what, where does this fit into this agenda? How seriously should we take it and what, what are its implications?
3: I go back and forth. (laughs) Honestly, I imagine that there would be a certain amount of battles with the courts if they were going to go this route. Now, of course, the Supreme Court um, obviously is sharply conservative. And so insofar as they're leaning on uh, this idea of the unitary executive, as they seem to be doing quite heavily, perhaps they would have some support there. But Scott, you should correct me if I'm wrong about this. I seem to remember from the uh, Ukraine scandal during the first impeachment that there were some questions about whether or not that the, the Trump administration had tried to use impoundment as an excuse for withholding funds from Ukraine. Um, and there were a lot of legal arguments about whether or not they could legally do do so. I'm not sure whether that's under case law or whether there is a statute. And so that seems to me to create problems. Um just, you know, the idea that you're going to go back to this really strong presidency without kind of a uh, independent administrative state around it is in line with conservative thinking in some ways, but I think it also tends to run like straight into the wall of a lot of the sort of legal apparatus that's been built up around the executive branch in the last 150 years. On the other hand, I mean, they're very, they're, they're talking about it. They're clearly running on it. And so, you know, I don't want to totally write it off um, in the same way as that that New Yorker cartoon that became very well known when Trump was uh, running for office that uh, has a picture of a wolf on a billboard that says, I'm going to eat you. And the sheep standing around are saying, well, he tells it like it is. You know, it's not very hidden. I will say that it is puzzling to me that Trump is both saying, Trump and, and the intellectuals around him, because we can't hold Trump to normal standards, are both saying it's outrageous that Trump is being politically prosecuted by the corrupt Biden administration. And the president should have the power to direct the prosecution of anybody who he likes. And we're going to go into a second Trump term with an explicit promise to make that a reality. Like, There's just an obvious disconnect there. I think the answer is that they just don't care, but it is still uh, striking, shall we say.
2: There's a great interview in the New Yorker between Isaac Chotner and uh, Noah Rosenblum, who's a uh, legal historian at an NYU, um, and it's one of those. It's one of those good interviews, one of the good Chotner interviews. Uh, I think Quinta, you had a couple of those. It's it's uh, so everyone everyone comes out looking good in it, and it's about this uh, the this set of plans that that Trump seems to have, um, and, and Noah makes a couple of really good points. I think the, the important, most important point he makes is that the sorts of plans that Are being discussed here are kind of fundamentally different than the legal issues that the Trump administration found itself in, in in Trump's first term, which is to say, you know, the reason that Trump lost in so many of his fights with the courts is because the Trump administration just screwed up badly on basic legal process. Um, they, They didn't do the notice and comment process correctly. They flagrantly made up pretextual reasons for things. And had the Trump administration been more buttoned up in how it did things, a a, a lot of those um, battles would have uh, gone in in its favor. And the reason that's important is because everything that Trump is proposing here is either definitely legal or, given the composition of the Supreme Court, um, legal enough that it's worth a shot. So, for example, the norms of independence between the White House and the Department of Justice are completely a Product of White House practice. There is absolutely no legal requirement that there be political walls of separation between the White House and the, and the attorney general. Um, there's nothing in the Constitution that forbids the president from commanding the attorney general who to prosecute. You know, Under certain circumstances, that could cause some prosecutorial issues down the line. But uh, Trump could, on day one, f- fundamentally reshape how he deals with the attorney general and the FBI director, and there would not be, I think, a legal issue there. So some of those, so the, and, and some of the proposals fall into that bucket. And there's another set of proposals, and particularly around removal of heads of independent agencies, where the last decade of Supreme Court opinion, uh, in which you have precedent after precedent um, that has been limiting Congress's ability to impose for cause removal restrictions on the heads of independent agencies, the, the, the logical conclusion of those cases um, is that almost in all circumstances, the uh, these removal restrictions are unconstitutional? Now, where the court has gotten to is that it still permits or it has left itself open to permitting for cause removal restrictions for multi member agencies. So, you know, the uh, SEC or the FTC, right, or the Federal Reserve is the most important example. But when you read the opinions, it's actually not clear where that limitation comes from. It's like a very arbitrary stopping line that they have drawn. So you could easily imagine the court just needing one more teed up opinion to get rid of that entirely. So all of this, all of this is to say we should be taking this, I think, extremely, extremely uh, seriously, because um, as long as the, the you know second Trump administration, or again, I think maybe, maybe more importantly, a DeSantis administration that I suspect would be ideologically um, very uh, on board with this plan and uh, from an execution perspective, much more competent, um, they can probably get a lot of this done if they want to. So I disagree. I don't think
0: that's right. On a variety of fronts. I don't think your it,
2: face is right, Scott.
0: It's That's probably true. I'm not going to lie, but that's okay. Particularly, because I got a little sunburn this weekend. It's looking a little, look a little, little uh, rosier than usual. Um, I, I don't fundamentally disagree with some of what – some of this is implementable. It's a real spectrum. I think a lot of it's much harder to implement just from the presidency. So you talk about civil servant removals, right? Like there's big statutory underpinnings to civil servant protections. What the Trump administration tried to do was just recategorize a bunch of civil servants and just say, oh, yeah, no, you guys are now Schedule F and Schedule F doesn't get any of these protections all of that was going to go through massive amounts of litigation it was already set up to get a whole array of legal challenges because of course there's questions of contract there's questions of reliance and expectations there's questions of statutory authority and that goes in through a lot of these issues think about like the impound the idea that we're going to turn back to impoundment i mean that is in a fight that's been fought out between congress and executive branch many times there's lots and lots of statutes congress has enacted to make it really hard for the executive branch to do that sort of thing again that came up in the ukraine context that was a reason why the Trump administration was trying to negotiate around this, but never really got to a great answer as to why it could do it indefinitely is, that, is my recollection of where we landed on that issue. I could be a little shaky on that because it's been a while. It's just not easy to work around these legal things, which is why when Trump tried to do it last time, his internal people said you probably can't get away with this. This is and there's a great quote that I, I think it's John Kelly, if I recall correctly, had in the New York Times article about this, which I think is captured exactly right. When in describing what it would look like if Trump were to actually try and implement these things, it would be chaotic. It would just simply be chaotic because he would continually be trying to exceed his authority, but the sycophants would go along with it, and it would be a nonstop gunfight with the Congress and the courts. You can achieve fundamental change like this. You can, and 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 some of it may. There's a good argument for. It. Like I actually think there's a. You know I think it's you done maliciously, it would be horrible, um but there may be a good argument to say maybe we should have more federal agencies outside of washington d c and and spread federal workplace around the country. I think there might be ways you could do that in a humane way to the current workforce that would have positive externalities for the country, right. But you need Congress on board to do a lot of this stuff soundly. Maybe the president can do some of this stuff, but it's going to be caught in years of litigation, and you're going to have a lot of pressure points where if Congress doesn't like it, they're going to be able to bring pressure on you in other ways. And by the way, this is something some people feel really strongly about in the potential future Trump White House. But guess what? It's not a priority, and we can tell because look at the NDAA. What are the issues that are being hammered out there? Are they trying? Is the House trying to leverage its authority to like you know? undermine different hiring authorities or wind down the independence of different federal agencies. No, they're focusing on culture war issues. And that's where the political capital is going to go because that's what people seem most revved up about. So I think a lot of this is, is a real thing we should talk about. It's worth engaging with on the train of ideas. Um, but I think the idea that this is what the Trump administration will immediately start doing, I think is really, really kind of a rose-colored glasses vision of this. One that these people are are advancing themselves because they're relying on people saying, yeah, you can do this. It's so dangerous for the Trump administration to do this so that when they actually get elected and they try and do it, it seems non-controversial. It will be very controversial because it's half of it is very legally questionable, three quarters of it, very legally questionable. And it's going to be fought tooth and nail, and it's probably going to lose at least a substantial number of those battles. So I, I'm just not convinced this is that serious effort. I think it's a very serious effort to get attention I think it's a very serious effort to raise money um, because that's what these things do. I think it's a very serious effort, as they say very expressly, to adjust the Overton window, adjust expectations, make much more extreme ideas, but not quite maybe as far as they're going in the more Republican mainstream. But I think a lot of this is still quite pie in the sky.
3: There's also, I mean, I think that that John Kelly point is really, really important. You know, Trump does not have, this is not the A team, right? It's not the B team. It's not the C team. It's not even the F team. These are like... The dregs of the dregs of the dregs. It's sycophants, true believers, people who are on the Trump train because they want to make a buck. That is just not a recipe for, you know, if you had an evil genius implementing this stuff, maybe you could do it in a super clever way that would dodge some of these legal problems. I have zero confidence that they would not do this in the stupidest, clumsiest way possible.
0: Yeah, I would like to say along those lines, one of the people who's who's kind of the spokespersons for this effort, who's quoted at length in the New York Times piece, they don't note his current occupation, which is he's like 34. And after he left as the head of the presidential personnel office in the Trump administration, he founded The Right Stuff, a voting website or a dating website for conservatives, uh, which is my favorite name for a specialized dating website since Atlas hugged the dating website for objectivists a few years <laughs> back. Uh, so I'm thrilled that this is this exists in the world. And I think it's hilarious, but it's it's like, this is not a deep policy driver. There are people who are more serious involved with these efforts, but again, it's, it's, it's on the margins. And a lot of idea generation is idea generation. Like we, we do, people do this on the left too. It's like people outside, they try and get attention to their ideas. They try and build things, build narratives, build momentum, but it's, it's rarely one-to-one implementation. That's not really what these sorts of efforts
2: are aimed at. If there are any listeners uh, who have screenshotted Scott's Atlas hugged Dating profile, please send. Tm me to
0: tm 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 If if I'm wrong, and that hasn't happened yet. Tm tm tm. It's coming. It's coming. It's a so good. So
2: good look. I I don't I don't disagree with you, Scott. That a lot of this probably would fail. Um, I, I think the removal stuff has a very high chance of succeeding, uh, and it does not require a lot for Trump to set that ball in motion. You know, unlike reclassifying the civil service, uh, he can walk into the White House on day one, pick any random. Head of a multi-member agency, and fire them, and just see what happens because that will tee up a fight that goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And if he's smart, he won't do that with the Fed, so as to maximize his chances of this of the court upholding what he does and then cowing the Fed into submission. You know, the the sort of question I have is is you know whether this should whether we should whether we should see this as purely an expression of you know, a particular idiosyncratic politician who hates the government because he thinks it's out to get him. You know, which in, in some ways it is out to get him. Uh, <laughs> he keeps committing crimes uh, and wants to personally attack it. Um, or or if if this is a reflection of however misguided a sort of more interesting openness to government reform on on the right. I mean, we are in an interesting moment in American in American history where you have these you know profound questions about basic government structure on both the left and, and the right. Um, the left having lost a, a huge amount of confidence in, in the courts, uh, in the Supreme Court in particular, particular and the right in having you know, lost a huge amount of confidence um, in its own government. And again, I'm not trying to equate those as equally legitimate, I think, but it, it is it, it can, an interesting question to ask you know, whether or not we are, we are living through a moment where you know, there is just more openness for fundamental governmental reform whether it's, you know, good or bad idea.
3: I mean, I think that requires a level of credulity about what the right is doing here that is unwarranted, frankly. That is the nice way of saying it. Like, there's not any actual interest in government reform as a project here. There is an interest in serving the God Emperor Trump There is an interest in hurting people who they don't like. There's an an interest in destruction. But I don't think that there are abstract principles here that go beyond, I don't like these people and I want to hurt them and I like Trump and I want to help him. And I I just fundamentally think that it's a mistake to think that there's any kind of alignment um, with the right. And we've seen that again and again and again. We've seen it when it comes to Internet policy. Right. We've seen it when it comes to surveillance reform. Like there is just any number of of things where some the right sort of makes a noise about something and the left goes, ah, maybe we can align on this. And just like no, it, it never it will never ever work. It is not sincere. And to the extent that it is sincere, it will turn on a dime the moment that Trump changes his tune.
2: I think that's definitely true for I think that's definitely true for Trump and maybe for his closest circle. But I think it's overdetermined. I think there are plenty of people who have been who have had very principled and very weird views on executive power and the unitary executive for decades, uh, and this is their chance to get that into policy. Um, so I mean, I I think it can be I think it can be both and.
0: I, yeah, I'm I'm not quite really ready to co qu- quite such a broad uh, you know denunciation of the right, but because uh, I think there are plenty of ideas, you know, know, criminal justice reform, like where actually has been things done that were bipartisan and substantial and interesting. Like there are areas where these come out. I think there's, they're motivated, they're principal. It's like, they're not the top tier issues because the top tier issues are the ones that get people angry and politicized and donating money and organized. Right. And so those are the ones that get played up and you're not going to see they're designed because they are heated and there isn't room for compromise and they they motivate people. So those tend to be like the big focus for political campaigns to uh, way oversimplify things. But I think those other issues do exist. Is this one of them? I, I, st- I do have doubts about that. The other thing to bear in mind is like... These issues, ideas have been around in one form another for a very long time. Like a lot of the stuff dates back to the Nixon and post-Nixon era when the kind of, uh, you know, neoconservative era, where we had a lot of people saying we're really worried about the extent to which executive power has declined. That is a viewpoint that has informed a lot of Republican policymaking, particularly in the national security space, but also in other areas for, for decades now. And this is kind of like a hypercharged version of that. Um, whereas that's declined, frankly, in my view, in a lot of other parts, particularly like after the George W. Bush administration, where we saw a real effort towards this, that quickly failed in the courts, failed on a number of fronts, you know, successfully launched a war or two, but did ultimately not really stand legal muster. And you saw the Bush administration itself actually dramatically shift away from broad claims of executive power because it kept losing and could get Congress on board. So why wouldn't it with some compromising here and there? You know, I I think it's just it. There's there's not that much demand for a lot of these issues. Maybe there's a little marginal ones. Like I said, I mean there there could be reasons to say reasonably say certain offices maybe will begin to move workforce outside of Washington D.C. or base it elsewhere. Like I could see a reasonable basis for doing that. You want to do it humanely to like support people who are in D.C. right now, so they don't just get like cast on their butts. But I tend to think that those would be marginal issues. Um, These issues are also really so hard because they're always politically charged because you cannot divorce them from the context of one party having the presidency in their control or the other. So they're much more divisive than other issues where there may be common ground for that reason, because there's never a get away from the political balance. The one advantage they do have, which I think you're very astutely note, Alan, it's worth mentioning, is that when you are foundationally committed ideologically to like deregulation and you overvalue it it makes it much easier to do disruptive things in government because you're you you don't weigh the the negative risks very highly so like it's very easy perhaps or perhaps easier for a a future trump administration to step in and say oh i'm going to you know say we think the view of the current composition of a particular enforcement agency is unconstitutional, right? And we don't care if that risks invalidating all the enforcement actions that that agency has taken the last couple of years, which is what was that issue with, with, you know, the CFPB and other agencies that have undergone these sorts of reviews, let alone the Justice Department during the Whitaker era during the Trump administration, right? Like that those are real legal risks. That's why the government doesn't come in and do that stuff too willy nilly. Maybe they undervalue that. And we certainly know when it comes to like kicking a huge amount of civil servants out or threatening them or frankly, just making the government like a less pleasant place to work and what are often really hard jobs already. The Trump administration's fine with that because they just don't assign much value to what the government does do. I think that's a foundationally misinformed and uninformed opinion. I think a lot of Republicans agree with that because like there are a lot of Republicans who spend their careers in government and understand that while they like maybe more libertarian or more conservative than the mainstream government policy, they still understand the government does a lot of good, important things. And you have to keep it around to do that. Um, And there's a reason those views don't succeed. But it does make it a little easier, particularly if you have like an ideological coterie in, in the White House, willing to take those extreme steps. And, you know, it's costly and painful for the pushback to come. And maybe they just don't have a higher tolerance for that pain than other administrations might. Well, folks. That, unfortunately, brings us to the end of our time together this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with an object lesson to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
2: So I have the Netflix documentary Tour de France Unchained, which I'm embarrassed to say took me several episodes to understand the pun in that uh, in that title because I am not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, I, I, I am not like generally a fan of... The Tour de France, you know, I think a combination of just watching a a bunch of dudes bike plus the whole Lance Armstrong hangover kind of turned me off from it. But it is undoubtedly an incredible event. And Netflix has made a very, very good documentary about it. Um, It is like very watchable. Um, It's very sympathetic. It makes it really exciting um, in a way that I just can't imagine following the Tour de France for Weeks and weeks on end is though, to be clear, I do have some friends that like the Tour de France, and people who like following the Tour de France really like following the Tour de France. Um they're 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 real diehard about it. Uh, but it's a great documentary. Um and so it's highly recommended, even if you don't think you like cycling, uh, because it's just really compelling stories. And I gotta say, it's like I I kind of can't believe the Tour de France is legal. Like it is one of the most brutal things you can do to yourself. And I just I feel bad for all these guys. It's just awful.
0: Well, I will say I am, you know, know I'm becoming a fa- middle-aged father because I now find sports documentaries really interesting. So I will definitely check this out. I'm curious. I have it is in that universe of sports. I do not understand why people watch and enjoy like racing, particularly like, you know, F1 where it's just going in circles. And I, I don't get it, but I'm sure there'd be more to understand if I actually studied it. So maybe this is the excuse we need. Quinto, what do you have for this, us this week?
3: I would like to share an amazing article in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, um, and I will just read the headline to you. Israeli antiquities are stranded at Trump's Florida estate as authorities fail to retrieve them. So apparently, uh, Israel uh, provided to the United States uh, in 2019 some uh, ancient Israeli clay lamps, uh, they were intended for a brief exhibition in Washington, uh, and somehow they ended up in Mar-a-Lago, where they remain. And Israel cannot figure out how to get them back. This is the least surprising thing. If you read the article, it's extremely funny because you can tell that like the Israeli authorities are just like falling over themselves not to try to blame Trump for this. Um, even though it is extremely clear that he absconded with their, you know, priceless artifacts.
2: Trump is the worst friend of all time.
3: It is just, just incredible. <laughs> so my my proposal, uh, which I also saw in Matt Gertz of Media Matters propose on Twitter, is that they should have uh, Mossad descend on Mar-a-Lago and carry out a raid in the middle of the night. Uh, and... Uh, retrieve the priceless artifacts. Tebe
2: style. Exactly. Guys, this is a a hostage situation. (laughs)
0: Look, the price tag said one goal on heights, and I don't know what they're expecting. (laughs) That's what you get. That's what you get, guys. Well, took a little dip back into my cocktail roots. I have found a great new cocktail I quite like, Uh, and I'm particularly curious because I know you have some cocktail fans listening. It is a cocktail from a pamphlet Put together by a pair of bartenders who I think are a married couple or a couple at least, maybe not married, from New Orleans named Maxim Pazuniak and Kirk Stoppenol. is like 10 or 15 years ago, called either rogue cocktails or beta cocktails. If anybody knows where to find this and can point me in the direction, I would welcome it because I want to drink more of these cocktails from the ones I found. But it is the wonderfully, wonderfully named Growing Old and Dying Young is a hope, not an inevitability cocktail that involves a base of chinar a kind of bracing uh, added element of uh, strong rye whiskey, uh, seven five to seven lemon peels uh, that you then twist into the cocktail and a pinch of salt stirred over ice. It is really phenomenal. Plays into the whole salt and Amaro thing that I really like from my palpable apathy expl- uh, explorations and my Brolio uh, experiments. So it's phenomenal. I highly recommend it. I'll throw a link in the show notes. So check it out. Once again, that name is the growing old and dying happy is a hope not an inevitability also notice just the growing old among uh cocktail huts as appears to be how much we refer to it well folks that brings us to the end of this week's episode rational security is of course a production of lawfare so be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other lawfare contributors and for information on lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Security and leave a rating review if you might be listening. In addition, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare for an ad free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noah Maasband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co host Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderhurt. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS.